We'll read today uh, verses 11 through uh, a little bit further than I think I have written in your bulletin, uh, through part of verse 21. And again, just a reminder, the the she and the her that we read of here is uh, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and of course uh, stands for the, the people there. So hear God's holy word. All her people groan seeking bread. They have given their precious things for food to restore their lives themselves. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. Is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones, and it prevailed over them. He has spread a net for my feet. He's turned me back. He's made me desolate, faint all day long. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are knit together. They have come upon my neck. He has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the hands of those against whom I am not able to stand. The Lord has rejected all my strong men in my midst. He has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes run down with water, because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands. There is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that the ones around about him should be his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his command. Hear now all peoples and behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to restore their strength themselves. See, O Lord, for I am in distress. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword slays, in the house it is like death. They have heard that I groan, there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my calamity, they are glad that you have done it. We'll end our reading there for this morning. I'm going to jump right into your outline as you see it there in your bulletin. In Second Peter 1, the Apostle Peter says that God has provided all things that pertain to life and godliness. All that we need uh, that includes our worship, our prayer, our communing with God in this life. I want you to think of um, all the examples and the models, the ways for relating to God that God has given to his church. Think of them as a, maybe a spectrum of color, a rainbow, if you will, uh, where every different color represents a different way of addressing God or different emotions that we bring to God or different ways that we come to him. Maybe yellow stands for offering thanksgiving to God and green stands for offering adoration to him. And red is praise to God. And blue is lamenting, uh, grieving, pouring out our troubles to the Lord. Uh, purple might stand for expressing questions and doubts to God. And say orange stands for calling to, for God's justice in the world, uh, where there's injustice. Uh, pink stands for our daily needs, bringing our requests to the Lord. And we could go on and on. A whole spectrum, a whole rainbow, if you will, of, of ways to relate to the Lord in worship. Well, the Psalms, as the songbook that God's given to his people, 
um, have that full spectrum. And I want to think particularly as we're looking at this book of Lamentations uh, for these weeks uh, of lament, uh, the piece of that spectrum that is lament, grieving over tragedy or sin or death. Uh, Jeremiah has much lament. Uh, again, the Psalms are full of that mode of, of even worship. Israel used that like regularly. Uh, Job is full of poetic lament, that, that genre of lament. Uh, the historical books have examples of that uh, in the Old Testament and references to whole collections of lament. Um, Jesus himself took lament on his lips at the very least in Psalm 22 on the cross. Uh, and then, of course, you have this, this whole book, The Lamentations of Jeremiah. Uh, the, the Jews continued throughout history and even to this day to some uh, degree to use and relate to uh, use the, the lament of the Bible uh, in times of grief or tragedy or uh, more recent history and, and regularly remembering the Holocaust. Uh, Christians around the world have and continue to use and relate to the lament in the scriptures. Those maybe facing um, things that drive them to that that, that we don't experience uh, in the same way. Never-ending war in parts of the world or persecution in, in the Muslim world or um, victims of the ravages of, of disease, of tsunamis, and so on. Uh, imagine, going back to the, the image of, of a, a spectrum, a rainbow, imagine you give your child a white coloring page and it has just the outline of a rainbow on it. And you tell them to draw a beautiful rainbow. And you give them a set of crayons, a box of crayons full of dozens of colors. And ask them to draw a rainbow. And after a while, you, you come back and they've just taken the, the red and the yellow crayon and colored the entire page. Um, well, that's, that's nice. The page is full of color, right? Uh, red and yellow are nice. But the concept of the rainbow that you had in mind is gone, right? It's, it's not there. I want to suggest that that illustrates what the modern Western church has done to some degree with, with worship. And the modes of worship that God has given. God gave for the church's worship this whole spectrum of emotions and, and ways to relate to him. Um, praise alongside of complaints and cries for justice. And especially as we're considering here, lament. And the church, the modern western church, if you will, has just grabbed the red crayon. Um, now lament is still preserved perhaps in, in great measure in, in prayer. Uh, but with regard to the rest of worship and, and singing, particularly, um, it, it's been largely excised from worship. Uh, you're largely expected to check your grief at the door when you come into worship. Uh, for thousands of years, it wasn't that way. Grief and crying and lament to God were expressed alongside praise and thanks and adoration in worship. And, and then suddenly... Uh, really, in the 1800s, the only mode that would be used then is praise, praise and thanks. Uh, now, our church, of course, and many others, though, though maybe not a, a majority, still use the Psalms. Uh, and, and so we have some experience of this full spectrum and lament and crying out for justice and all, all of these different colors, if you will. Uh, but do we appreciate that, that whole rainbow of ways to address the Lord that he's given us? Uh, do we know how to use it? Are we maybe uncomfortable uh, with, with lament? Um, we might ask, why is it that American Christians, I include 
uh, myself in, in these questions. Why do we not know the book of Lamentations? Uh, why do we know great is thy faithfulness? Why do we have coffee mugs with your mercies are new every morning on them? Uh, but, but know nothing of the rest of Lamentations. Again, I, I include myself in these questions, even though I at, at least grew up seeing the Psalms and the spectrum of emotions that, that's there. Uh, why does the modern American church have no affinity with millions of Christians who have desperately and gratefully used the, the Psalms of lament, or the, the lament of the Bible, uh, in, in uh, desperate situations through millennia? Well, of course, the answer is that we have no struggles, right? Uh, we have no sorrows. We've arrived. We have no use for such things. Life is easy and happy and good all the time. Uh, we modern Americans never suffer, right? Um, no, we have the highest rates of suicide ever known, highest rates of anxiety and depression. Most of us were born in a century that saw more death and destruction in war than ever in history before. Uh, more broadly in the world, there's more persecution of the church today than ever before, and, and we could go on and on. I want to read you how uh, commentator Christopher Wright begins his commentary uh, at the very beginning on, on Lamentations. He writes, In a world where the tide of human suffering threatens to overwhelm whatever dikes we put in place to contain it, is there any book of the Bible more relevant than this book that gives voice to the most awful pain imaginable? And yet, is there any book of the Bible more neglected? Uh, the, the neglect and, and loss of lament in much of the church goes, I think, hand in hand with our culture and is... Uh, in, in myself and our culture broadly is, is a capitulation to the culture that we live in. Our culture wants to ignore grief and death uh, in significant ways and, and sweep them under the rug. Um, our culture is intensely focused on feeling good, right? feeling happy, uh, and not feeling otherwise. We, we now have, even in the church, replaced funerals with celebrations of life. Uh, the traditional funeral included celebration and praise and mourning and sadness. And there, there's an attentional setting aside of those things there. People in our culture uh, apologize for tears. Uh, have you recognized that? How many times have you seen someone sharing at a funeral? And they begin struggling, crying, and they say, I'm sorry. Right? It's now considered polite to apologize we're publicly grieving that your loved one died. And, and we've bought into that. This leads, I think, to cheaper and shallower versions then of the hope and the joy that's left. I want you to see several in, in this uh, chapter here and what we've read this morning, several calls uh, to see and to learn from this grief here. Look at verse 12 where the, the, the single speaker here says, Is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see. And that, that part of the verse is, is kind of a difficult translation. You find some different, uh, slightly different translations of it. But it, it can be taken this way, and I think this is the sense of it. Is this sorrow not for you? At the beginning of the verse. In other words, is, is it not so that you would learn this, this great grieving? Uh, Christopher Wright, again, paraphrases the, the meaning here. He says, my suffering should be a lesson for you. 
The, the speaker here is saying, can you possibly, you passers-by, figuratively, you readers, can you possibly walk by and not learn from this? And verse 18 has a, a similar call. Um, Hear now all peoples and behold my pain. Uh, look at it and, and learn. So as we, as we discuss this, this topic of lament in the first point here, and this is, this is a little more topical and um, a, a little more of a, an introduction beyond last week to this book, but I want to suggest four ways that lament is still relevant and needed uh, for us, for the church. And then we'll move on in the other points to uh, some further lessons of this, this grief for us passers-by here from this chapter. So first, letter A on your outline, lament teaches us how to grieve. Uh, it teaches us how to grieve. Part of our Christian identity is and must be that we are those who grieve. We are those who mourn. We have many, many reasons to rejoice and give thanks, but Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. And the, the Beatitudes are not instructions so much as they are, this is who you are. You are those who mourn. Sin, we mourn pain and suffering and death. There, there's much to mourn. And so failing to mourn, failing to grieve is sin. There are many things we must grieve. Uh, Paul writes in First Thessalonians, though we do not grieve as those without hope. And, and Paul implies a couple of things in that, that well-known statement, that wonderful statement. First, that we do grieve. But that Christian grieving is with and towards hope. And lamentations and lament in the Bible teaches us about godly, hopeful grief that ends in hope and trust. Our impulse often is to ignore what should grieve us or to over-grieve in the sense that we're just focused on ourselves. It's self-pity. But lament and lamentations teaches us to direct all of our sorrow to God and find hope and eventually joy and contentment uh, there. Secondly, lament teaches us to grieve with others. Uh, to grieve with others. Part of the reason for lamentations for this book being in our Bible is that this grief would not be forgotten. Uh, with the verses we read already call us to, in, in a sense, join them. To see and to remember uh, scripture calls us to mourn with those who mourn. Surely our, our relative modern comfort and affluence is, is one large reason why we've decided we've graduated from needing lament and, and um, uh, these, these parts of the Bible. Um, and maybe it's also, uh, again, what I mean by that is we, many of us haven't faced the ravages of war um, or tsunami or, or our lives and livelihood threatened because of our faith. And so we've built up maybe a rather thick sense of self-reliance. But I don't think we have to think too hard to realize we have many, many reasons still to learn from lament. Deep struggles and sorrows and griefs that all of us have. Uh, certainly burdens that some of us are carrying this morning that, that maybe no one else knows about. And at the very least, Lamentations reminds us of millions of brothers and sisters in Christ who are carrying griefs around us and around the world. In our globalized world, we, we know about people suffering around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we ought to mourn for and mourn with those who mourn uh, near us and, and far from us. Uh, thirdly, letter C, uh, lament gives voice and legitimacy to our tears. Uh, Lamentations takes these great griefs 
uh, directly to God and teaches us to do so. Verse 11, for example, See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. Uh, Verse 20, a similar statement, See, O Lord, for I am in distress. My spirit is greatly troubled. Could could quote many uh, addresses to the Lord in this book. Lamentations confesses that God is sovereign over griefs. And so it, it relates all of these things to him, even if the, the speaker doesn't understand these things. Verse 13, From on high he sent fire into my bones, and it prevailed over them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate. Uh, verse 15, The Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. Uh, verse 17, The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that the ones round about him should be his adversaries. And again, we could go on and on. We'll, we'll talk more uh, next week about uh, the, the, the speaker here wrestling with the, with the Lord's uh, role uh, in this tragedy in Jerusalem. Um, and as we'll see later in the book, God sees and has compassion. Uh, we're not there yet, but uh, Psalm 56 is another uh, wonderful statement of that. Uh, we, we read also and we read about um, tears. I forget which verse that is. I didn't note it. But uh, Psalm 56, David says that God counts all of his tossings in the night when he's struggling. And then says that God collects all of his tears and writes all each of his tears down in a book. Uh, figuratively uh, speaking of God, how much God cares for your tears. Kathleen O'Connor is a, a commentator reflecting on Psalm 56 and Lamentations. Writes this, Lamentations validates tears. It has the power to gather bitter pain and bring tears to the surface. God receives and tenderly holds tears as if they are precious. This vigilant, seeing, tear-collecting God weeps with the weeping world. And that's not just poetic or speculative. The Bible uh, describes our God in that way. Uh, Isaiah 63 says that in all their affliction, He was afflicted. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, God says he will weep and wail for his people. And then those statements become more than just anthropopathic poetic descriptions of God. God became man in the person of Jesus and wept real tears for Lazarus and wept for Jerusalem and, and weeps with you and for you. Do we really suppose that, maybe we haven't thought about it, Uh, but that Jesus wept real tears in his time on earth, that he, being still fully human, fully God-man, doesn't still weep real tears with you and for you. Uh, Fourthly, uh, lament promotes honesty about this broken world. Promotes honesty about this broken world. This goes back to the fact that, again, modern writers of worship songs have, to some degree, cherry-picked the easy, happier parts of the rainbow uh, of that spectrum of emotions that God gave us in our desperate need to worship Him. You know, great is thy faithfulness is plucked out of lamentations and a wonderful song is made, but the rest is cast aside. Uh, As the deer is another, you know, wonderful Christian song. Um, As far as it goes, it was pulled from the few happy, comfortable pieces of Psalm 42 and, and the rest of Psalm 42, which brings deep grief to the Lord, is, is not included. Uh, many of us struggle to find peace regularly. Right? We wrestle with sorrows and griefs 
was reminded of, of an article years ago that got a good bit of attention by uh, Carl Truman. Some of you know that name, the theologian, former pastor, teaches at Grove City College now. Uh, but he wrote an article entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And, and he notes in there the influence of, of affluence in our culture and, and the health and wealth gospel and so on. And, and surveys the vast majority of Christian hymns and, and other songs and he's less wondering the title. What can miserable Christians sing? You know, for, many, many, for, for thousands of years, no believer assumed that, that all that would be available to sing and worship would be happy songs of praise. Someone grieving deep tragedy wasn't expected to just get up and sing, It is well with my soul. Because it is so often not well with our souls. And God knows that and has provided lament. The Bible gives us voice to that honesty. The, the title of that article might just as easily have been, What can doubting Christians sing? What can fearing Christians sing? So the, the genre of lament is a valuable and needed gift from the church. It, it deals honestly with the realities of life. And it's through an honest expression of sadness, of loss, of grief, of pain, that, that the psalm writers or that Job or that Jeremiah come to a deeper and, and more profound hope and trust in the Lord. It's, it's earned honestly, in a sense, by working through grieving with hope. So may we better learn to do that through this study here. Look at number two on your outline then. And, and, and verse 12 again. Uh, again, is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Or is it not for you? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me. I want to suggest that part of what's being said here is, is that there's, there's something different about this grief that we're supposed to see. The speaker is, is calling for us to see it and see what's, what's different about it. And, and I think that's maybe reflected well in what uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, who read earlier, what he calls godly sorrow or godly grief. And we begin in chapter 1 here to see some aspects of grieving in a biblical way, a redemptive way. Uh, not just uh, self-pity or complaining, uh, particularly... Um, we, we learn in chapter 1 here how to grieve the consequences of sin. Uh, I noted last week that not all of our suffering or sorrow in, in general, it's not connected one-to-one -one with, with wrong things we've done, with sins we've done. That's not how God uh, relates to us. Um, all sorrow and grief is a, is a consequence of sin in general, at least. But, and so Lamentations has lessons for grieving with hope in, in general sorrows. But today I want to think particularly about, specifically about looking at grieving because of our sin and its consequences or because of the consequences of sin in general. If we're growing in Christ, God is constantly confronting us with our sin, its consequences, calling us away from it to a better way, to, to truer love and truer holiness. So I, I want you to listen again. I'm going to read a few of the verses from, that, that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7 about godly grief. And we'll think about what we can learn of that here in Lamentations 1. Paul writes, again, speaking about his previous letter that was kind of rough and grieving, uh, grievous because it was confronting them with, with hard things. He said, For if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, 
For I see the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And then he calls them to see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. And later, what zeal. There's a godly grief and there's a worldly grief. What would worldly grief be? Well, worldly grief might simply be feeling bad for yourself, for your own sake. Self-pity without any reference to God or what he might be teaching you in this hard thing. Uh, It might just be simple regret over something you did, maybe because you got caught or the consequences are uncomfortable. Uh, Worldly grief produces bitterness towards God or towards others. But Paul praises the Corinthians for their godly grief. He describes a process that's reflected in in Lamentations. Uh, Godly grief uh, acknowledges sin. And, And the speaker in Lamentations here begins to do that. Look at verse 14 where he says, The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They're knit together. They have come down on my neck. There's the the images of all of my sins. It's like they've been bound up in a giant bundle and then laid on my neck as a huge burden. He's he's acknowledging this this is because of my sin. Um, Godly grief acknowledges that God is is righteous in allowing consequences, in, in chastening us, and in not allowing us to be comfortable in our sin. Uh, verse 18, the psalmist, the, 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 right, the, the speaker here, uh, yeah, it's the singular speaker, uh, confesses, The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his command. Um, understanding how truly holy and good God is, is, is alone what shows us how sinful our sin is. Uh, Christopher Wright, again, uh, he notes that uh, what, what the speaker here is confessing is not really that it's the Babylonians that have triumphed so much as the justice of God. Uh, God is righteous. And, and that doesn't answer all of our questions. And we'll have more questions to wrestle with that, particularly as we go through the book. Um, this, this godly grief gets even clearer, more hopeful later in the book. And, and I'm constantly tempted to, to draw you to chapter 3, but I, I will a little bit. Uh, chapter 3, verse 32, the speaker will come to say, For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Godly grief that acknowledges sin, acknowledges God is right and just, produces repentance then. Again, this, this will come out more clearly later. Chapter 3, verse 40, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. It's very clear. But here, even in chapter 1, the the speaker begins to move this way. Verse 20. uh, Look at verse 20. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is overturned within me. It's maybe a little bit of a strange English translation, overturned there. Uh, Strong's Hebrew dictionary for that Hebrew word. These are the first few definitions or synonyms given. Uh, To become, to change, to be converted. I think the speaker is speaking about a, a change in his heart. A changed heart is part of the outcome of, of seeing our sin and its consequences, seeing that God is right. 
And that leads to new life, renewed life in what is right. Paul, in, again, 2 Corinthians 7, says that godly grief, the ultimate outcome is salvation. It's, it's a reconciliation with God. There's two outcomes. Worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces life. Worldly grief doesn't lead to conviction of sin or hatred of sin. It doesn't... Um, it leaves us unreconciled with God, not pursuing righteousness, uh, not receiving His forgiveness. Sin is is death and rot in our souls. Uh, it, it kills us spiritually. It destroys the image of God in us. It's death. But godly grief restores the image of God in us. It, it reconciles us to our Heavenly Father. It produces life in us. And before we look at the third point in your outline, just uh, one one other side note here. I noted last week the, the three voices in Lamentations. There's the narrator, which is most of what we read last week, and then there's the um, the first person plural, that we'll, the we, the us, that we'll come to later. And then there's this singular voice. This is mostly what we read today uh, in this chapter. Um, the voice that speaks as a representative of the people. He, he seems to speak for them as a sufferer with them. Uh, but there's more than that, as we'll see. He speaks to them and directs them as well. And I suggested last week that it's in this voice particularly that we hear the voice of Jesus. And the question I want to raise here this morning is, does, does the fact that this voice, this singular voice, expresses guilt over sin, does that exclude the possibility that this, we would hear the voice of Jesus in this voice? That it points us to him? And, and I think the answer is clearly No. Jesus was completely without sin. That's why it's a difficult question, right? But such is the depth and reality of his taking on sin, taking the identity of a sinner. No less difficult or striking is, is Paul's statement that he became sin for us. The sinless Son of God became sin. Or it's parallel to that, that singular character in Isaiah who was numbered with the transgressors. And the New Testament tells us that speaks of Jesus. The Psalms, as the New Testament makes clear, the Psalms give us the voice of Jesus throughout, particularly when we find that singular person speaking his suffering, his grief, his faith. But what are the confessions of sin in the Psalms? Uh, Psalm 69 would be one example. All four Gospels quote Psalm 69 and say this is, this is Jesus. Uh, so throughout Psalm 69, not just one piece of it, too. But that includes verse 5. God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. So such is the identification of the one who became sin for us. Uh, thirdly, I want to come back to this theme that we touched on last week of longing for comfort. Um, Jerusalem is pictured as an oppressed widow uh, without comfort in this, uh, all through this chapter. Look at verse 2 again. She has no one to comfort her. Uh, verse 9 she has no comforter. I'll begin in verse 15. Uh, he has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. Uh, the Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things as I weep, my eyes run down with water because far from me is a comforter. In verse 17, there is no one to comfort her. In verse 21, there is no one to comfort me. Um, all these statements about lack of comfort, longing for comfort, I think one of them is unique. One of them is different than the others. Verse 16, 
uh, should probably, and some, some translations reflect this, uh, read, far from me is the comforter. Far from me is the comforter. And there are several reasons to think that God himself is in view there in, in verse 16. Uh, for one thing, you see the next line, uh, he is the one who restores my soul. Well, that's how God is described elsewhere in the Bible. Think of Psalm 23. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, uh, etc., your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is the comforter who restores my soul. And then often the Psalms long for comfort when God seems distant. They're longing particularly for God. Psalm 119, verse 82, for example, my, my eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? So I think we should understand it this way here. Far from me is the comforter who restores my soul. It, it's striking then uh, also to recognize that in the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Even before Jesus' time, they had translated into Greek. So the Septuagint is the Greek Bible that Jesus and people in his day knew. The, the Septuagint translates the word comforter here, parakletos. And you may have heard the English transliteration paraclete, parakletos, paraclete. That's the word in the New Testament that's taken up to speak of the, whole, the Holy Spirit. Uh, the counselor, the helper, the comforter. It, it's a... It's a big concept with, with lots of nuance. And it reminds us of Jesus' promise in John 14. I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper, comforter, paraclete, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus promised a comforter who would be with His people constantly. He would act as a teacher. He'd act as a reminder, a counselor, uh, a comforter. He would pray for and with you. Now, I think the Old Testament saints had the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that at Pentecost that was when the Holy Spirit arrived for the first time. I think uh, anyone who's ever believed in the Lord and been saved had the Holy Spirit at work in them. And yet, our understanding, what, what was reflected in Jesus' promise and what happened at Pentecost is, is a, a pouring out of the Spirit in, in a much greater way, in a far greater awareness, in a far greater power to work through His people and take the Gospel to the ends of the world, a far greater awareness and understanding that it's the presence of Christ, it's the Spirit of Christ in us, um, how He's helping us to know and live out union with Christ and poured out in a fuller measure. Uh, our appreciation of his work is so much greater in Christ. It's for that reason, uh, commentator C.J. Williams uh, suggests, there, there is no New Testament counterpart uh, to this deep despair in Lamentations. The, the comforter is gone. I have no comforter. He, he suggests there's no New Testament counterpart, uh, nor could there be. And he's suggesting that because of our, our knowledge of the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. Because of what the Holy Spirit has taught us about Jesus. God is so with us. He so identifies with your suffering that He became sin. That He suffered with you and for you. He grieves with you. He grieves for you. He cries real human tears. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Himself on the cross in your place. 
so that you would never actually know the abandonment of God. And then this is what the Lord who promised never to leave you or forsake you. This is the Lord who, who promised never to leave you or forsake you, that he dwells in you uh, and, and will be with you, as we just read from John 14. You have the comforter that, that Judah here longed to know better. And so though you suffer the brokenness of this world as well, and, the, and the, the griefs and the consequences of your sin at times and the sin of this world, uh, you can actually obey Jesus' commands uh, not to fear, uh, not to be anxious, uh, to, to rejoice always, to give thanks in everything. And, and the book of Lamentations itself, again, will come to that affirmation, great is thy faithfulness. Uh, but it's, it's gained through true and godly grief, uh, through lament. Uh, their grief and their longing for comfort and, and your griefs and your longing for comfort, grieving sin and loss and all the effects of sin should cause you to reflect on what your sins cost Jesus. What his love for you and his desire to destroy all evil in this world one day cost him on the cross. <coughs> And, and to skip over godly grief and just skip to the his mercies are new every morning parts uh, cheapens uh, those confessions, uh, the grace of God. Uh, so may God teach us, again as chapter 3 will say, to examine our ways and return to the Lord uh, and find hope and joy in him through grieving, through repentance. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we... <clears throat> We thank you again this morning for this uh, difficult book that uh, causes us to think about the grief and the sadness of our world and the, the sin that still remains in us and its effects. Uh, but I thank you for the, uh, the ways that it points us to you, uh, to finding hope and complete satisfaction and joy and peace in you. And I pray that you would continue to lead us in that, that path as we... Uh, find that here in the book of Lamentations in, in weeks to come. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.